Welcome to Seize Your Midlife, the podcast exclusively for midlife women. I'm your host, Bree Schumacher. We are going to dive into all the things from health and hormones to beauty and wellness. We'll be asking the question, what's my midlife purpose? And what am I going to do with the rest of my life? We'll also be interviewing women who've taken leaps or made U-turns in midlife. This conversation is going to be engaging, sometimes educational, a little bit funny, and always real. It is my sincere hope that you find your midlife purpose and lead your most fulfilling life. So join us on this journey to seize your midlife. Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Seize Your Midlife. I am so glad that you are here today. And I am especially excited because I have a really interesting guest on the show today. Tracy Conan is a forensic accountant with over 25 years of experience, and she has literally worked on more than 500 fraud cases. She has her undergrad in criminology and law studies and an MBA, all from Marquette University. And she has testified in more than 80 depositions and trials in both state and federal courts. It is like CSI, but for money. And so I love it. And I am so excited for you to hear more about Tracy's story and her bio and all of the interesting things she does. So welcome to the show, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here too. All right. Well, the first question I ask on every one of my episodes is, how old are you? Hey, I guess I'm middle-aged now. I'm 50. <laughs> well, and this is the only podcast that's appropriate to ask a woman, like right off the bat, how old are you? But, you know, this is the midlife podcast. So awesome. And where are you right now? I am in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So it's a little bit chilly here. <laughs> and I love that. And it's so funny because when we connected, you didn't know I was from Wisconsin. And so I love that we have that connection because I have a a deep love of Wisconsin and everyone that knows me knows that. I call it the Wisco love affair. So although this time of year, I can't say I'm sad to to miss the weather. <laughs> well, it's true. Wisconsin has the nicest people that live here and pass through here, but winter can be a little brutal. So you always got to make sure that you get away to somewhere warm and sunny at least a couple times during winter. Hey, that was always my motto. I'm like, at least January, February, like you must go somewhere. <laughs> okay, so let's just dive right in. And the first thing I want to know is, did the financial crime life find you or did you find the financial crime life? I think it found me because I was, as you mentioned, getting a degree in criminology and there was an elective that was offered once every few years called financial crime investigation. And I thought it sounded interesting. And it was my sophomore year. And I said, well, gosh, if I ever want to take this course, I have to take it now because it won't be offered again before I graduate. And I took it for no reason other than I was just curious and learning about that. And it felt like a fun elective. And I ended up loving the material. 
And I started taking accounting classes, took one accounting class. Let's see if I'm any good at this. And I was. And so that was like the direction my career headed from there on out because I came into the criminology program with the intention of being a prison warden someday. So I took a little bit of a detour. I love that backstory because that I don't know anyone, you're it, that ever had their career dreams to be a prison warden. So <laughs> I get that reaction a lot. But it's true. It was, it truly was the career goal that I entered the criminology program with. I love that. And I think something to just like hold on to from your story is that you saw something, you're like, this sounds interesting. And so I'm going to just go for it. And I think like in midlife, I tell people this all the time like, if something sparks your interest, just try it because obviously doing that changed the trajectory of your life. And I think it's such an important message. So thank you for sharing that. Well, the interesting thing is that back then when I was in this program 30 years ago, no one was saying forensic accounting. It was a a term that existed um, as far as I can see, but nobody was talking about it. So I like, you know, took a liking to this financial crime investigation, not realizing that someday I would have this career and I would run around calling myself a forensic accountant. Well, and will you just give everybody like a quick Wikipedia version about what forensic accounting is? Because I bet a lot of people don't really know. Well, of course, I'm an accountant, but I specialize in doing fraud investigations. The easy way I like to say it, the fun way is I find money. A lot of what I do is on the corporate side where there is an executive who is stealing from a company or, you know, engaging in some kind of shenanigans with their money. I do a lot of divorce work, uh, typically for people who are well off uh, because they have more complicated financial scenarios and they have situations where their spouse might be trying to hide money from them. And we're trying to figure out where did the money go? Is it all accounted for? And then some of what I do is companies fighting with one another over contracts gone bad or other business situations where someone has lost money and they need someone like me to figure out how much money has been lost or where has the money gone or how much did someone make or not make all sorts of complicated money issues. That's me. I sort through it all, figure out what the right numbers are, write an expert report, and then sometimes testify in court as an expert witness. I love it because I feel like, you know, accounting sounds kind of dull. I got to be honest, but you add the like, Ooh, the, you know, the fraud and the crime, and it feels like it's right out of a TV show. And so I, I think it's fascinating. Well, I think if you, if you watched my everyday work, you would think it's very, very boring. I've had people say, Hey, I'm, I'm a college student. Could I come shadow you for a day? No, you do not want to shadow me and watch me just sit and play with spreadsheets for 12 hours. I mean, that's what I do is literally dig through all of these details. But to me, it's fascinating because I'm looking for, you know, that smoking gun, that piece of a puzzle to fit in. And and there's so much strategy involved in what I do. There's so many facets of what I do that are interesting. But if you watched me, it would look awfully boring. (laughs) And I would probably be terrible at it because I'm not good at the details. But it sounds like you were made for this. And that's why after working for other accounting firms, you took the leap and started your own business. Will you just talk a little bit about how you made that tr- transition and that decision? Well, it was um, a rash decision, really. I graduated with my MBA. I sat for the CPA exam and I went to work for Arthur Anderson, which was one of the big accounting firms at the time. 
and worked there for about 18 months, got a little bit of experience in the area of fraud, but really didn't have an opportunity to specialize in that. So I got an opportunity to go to work for a small forensic accounting firm, and I jumped at it, went and kind of learned the trade because forensic accounting at that time, again, we still weren't referring to it as forensic accounting necessarily. It was something that you weren't learning in school. You had to learn on the job. So I took this job, worked for this firm for a couple of years, and then in a moment just decided I wanted to do my own thing. I had a different idea for how business should be done. 23 years ago, it will be on January 1st, 23 years that I started my own firm. It was silly because I had no savings. I had no professional network to speak of. I had no clients that I was taking with me. And I was still relatively inexperienced in forensic accounting. I'd only had a couple of years under my belt, but I took the leap. And what I wanted to do a little bit differently was I wanted to get away from an hourly fee model. So most accountants, most attorneys bill by the hour, X number of dollars per hour for whatever time I spend on your case. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do fixed fees. I wanted to look at what you wanted to accomplish with your project what effort I thought it would take, what value that would have to you and come up with a fixed fee. So I've been doing fixed fees for 23 years. And you know, I love about your answer there is your first line, which was, it was a rash decision because I wish people would make more rash decisions because I think we operate so much by fear. And I always say like, say to yourself, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, you, you go get another accounting job, right? But you took that leap and you ended up building this amazing career because you did, because you were rash, because you didn't operate by fear. And so I think that's such a good message um, because even as we are in midlife right now, we're not operating from no savings, no, you know, little experience, all those things. We're operating from all the experience, more financial stability. And so if we have a dream, I think best be rash, right? Well, you're exactly right that I was betting on myself and my ability to be successful. And I knew that I would do whatever it took to be successful. I had the backup plan and the backup to the backup and the backup to the backup to the backup. I knew, like you said, worst case scenario, I go get a traditional job, but I, you know, started off with no money and no clients. Okay. What am I going to do to start getting clients? And in the meantime, I took a job through a temp agency doing accounting work at other firms who needed an extra set of hands. It was flexible. It allowed me to pay the rent, but it allowed me time to still work on trying to get clients in this new business. And then from there, when that work ended, I still had a backup plan. Okay, I can always go work at Starbucks. I can always go wait tables. There are things that I can do to get money in the door. Ultimately, it took quite some time before I was bringing in enough to support myself. The best thing that I did was about eight months into it, I went and got a job teaching college level accounting courses at night. So I had all day to work on my business during traditional office hours. But at night I was teaching Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, I was teaching and making enough to fully pay my bills, regardless of what happened in my new business. I love that. And I think it's the skill of the entrepreneur, right? To be to be crafty, to be, you know, innovative and how am I gonna make this work? How am I gonna make my dream come true? And it sounds like you 
you did that and you worked those side gigs until you could make this a full-time job. And I know when I started my Spanish school, I was about the same age you're talking about that you were when you started this. And I still had a full-time international job where I was traveling on the side. And I don't regret that because I think that stability makes you more all in because you're like, no, I want to leave that other job eventually. So what a great message of your story here. Now, will you tell us a little bit about, so you mentioned, you know, some of the different ways that you've used forensic accounting, but you talk a little bit more about the ways that you use it. Um, I know you've talked about testifying in court, which sounds really interesting. Will you share a little bit about that? Well, testifying in court is interesting. It's What's fun about it is it's kind of nerve wracking. I like to say it's like the Super Bowl for a football player. You know, most cases you hear this on TV that, you know, 90% of our cases settle out of court. It's, it's probably even higher than that. Most cases do settle out of court. Trials are expensive, time consuming, and unpredictable. You never know what a jury or a judge is going to decide. So if you can settle a case outside of that, it's, usually to your advantage, whether that's a divorce case or, you know, companies litigating against each other. But if we do get to that trial, that is like, you know, the Super Bowl for me. So there's a lot of preparation that goes into that. There's nerves that go into it. But ultimately, I love it. I love the gamesmanship behind it. I can testify either in front of a judge or in front of a jury. Let's talk about a jury for a second. I love sitting up on the witness stand and looking jurors in the eye and looking to make a personal connection with them. I'm thinking about what am I wearing to court? How am I fixing my hair? How do I look smart but approachable? How do I look like that nice young lady who seems to know so much when the attorney on the other side is probably trying to beat me up and make me look dumb or make me make a mistake or maybe even bully me. And so I'm thinking about how do I, how am I likable, but smart? That part is super fun for me. Oh my gosh. It does sound nerve wracking. <laughs> it is. I get nervous and I, I feel like a tiny bit of dread, but like, this is what it's all about. And when I get done, and I have testified and I can see all of the jurors are sitting there nodding with me. So one thing that I like to do that's kind of fun is I will be testifying about a really important thing that I need them to believe is true. This is my opinion about this issue. And I want them to agree with me that, that what I have said is true. And so when I'm testifying, I will start nodding my head up and down and see who on the jury is nodding, starts nodding their head with me. Because it is like a little like body language gesture that shows that they're in agreement with me and that they're believing what I say. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So this this is crazy. This is so fascinating. So what kind of trials are you on? Are these mostly corporate trials? Um, it is more so corporate trials, but also a fair number in the divorce area. Because again, you know, the divorces that I get personally involved in, there's a lot of money at stake. And so it's more likely that those are going to go to trial because the people, it, it, they are just complicated and people can't seem to agree about how to split the money and things like that. So I do a fair number of divorce trials as well. And those will typically, uh, in most states, those are just in front of a judge. But kind of same concept is I want to be likable to that judge. So 
I will have an attorney asking me questions and I'm sort of, it's a back and forth between me and the attorney who are asking me questions. And so I'll mostly look at that attorney because we are having a conversations, but there are times where I will purposely turn my head, look at the judge, try to make eye contact with the judge that increases my believability, right? It makes me look more honest, probably more approachable as well, and helps make that connection with that judge. Wow. I like it. Okay. And so that is a perfect segue because I want to start talking kind of about the divorce arena because that's part of your business that's really been growing. And one thing that came to mind, like as soon as I saw your bio and what you did is how I've heard women talk about how they are controlled by their husband through money. Can you talk a little bit about what that financial abuse looks like in a marriage? Yeah. And we talk about women in this regard because sadly it is women who are far more often controlled by the money and controlled by their husbands. We've come a long way, right? But in more of the households, the husband is the main breadwinner. The husband is in control of the budget and that opens the door for abuse. Now, when I talk about financial abuse, I am meaning controlling someone with the money. And that might be controlling what they can spend, what they have access to in terms of money, but also in terms of information. That might be concealing information from the spouse. It might be the person in control of the money spending freely while uh, not allowing their spouse to spend freely. Uh, it might be lying about the money. That's a form of abuse as well. So that's kind of the general like framework of what we're referring to when we talk about financial abuse. Yeah. And I think of it too, and maybe like a less, you know, big way, but the men that are saying to their wives, like, what is this purchase? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, okay, you know, combing through the credit cards and questioning every purchase that their wife makes at Target or wherever. Have you seen that? Micromanaging it. And, you know, I, I say things like, um, do you find that you can't go to the grocery store without getting quizzed about what you bought? Mm. That would be a sign. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, and how is, because I've, I've heard this term too, financial infidelity. What is that? And what does that look like in a relationship? Financial infidelity is being dishonest about the money. That might mean covering up what you're spending, lying about what you're spending, violating agreements that you and your spouse have about spending, spending on things that your spouse would never uh, be okay with, like drugs, affairs, gambling, things like that. And financial infidelity and financial abuse have a lot of overlap to one another. Um, so they can both be occurring at the same time. Think of financial infidelity as lies about the money, dishonesty about it in some regard. Think of financial abuse as the control of a person with the money, but there's going to be a lot of overlap because lying about the money can be a form of controlling that person. So I hope that helps. It definitely does. And when I think about, you know, like a woman uncovering that her husband has been gambling their savings, you know, that's kind of what comes to mind for me when I think about that financial infidelity. But like you said, it's really any 
lying or being shady or sketchy about money in a way that the spouse, which like you said, a lot of times is the woman, un- you know, uncovering or not uncovering is is that infidelity that we're talking about. Will you just talk a little bit about, because it sounds like to me that, you know, this divorce arena really started coming to you. Women were reaching out to you and saying, I am going through a divorce. I feel like my husband is hiding money or not being truthful, and I want your help. And you were like, e, I, I have this big retainer, and but you wanted to help the women. So talk about how this happened and transformed so that you ended up creating the divorce guide. Will you just talk a little bit about how that ended up happening? You're right. I have been doing divorce stuff for – Oh gosh, probably about 20 years. When I started my company, I at first didn't work on divorces, wasn't interested in that. But over time, divorce cases started coming to me. And I do find that women in particular are finding me uh, on the internet by doing Google searches. And they're coming to my website and realizing that they need help because they have concerns about the money. And there's a continuum there. Some people, you know, say, oh gosh, I think my husband is hiding money. I think he's been spending it on an affair or things like that. But the other end of the spectrum is women who are saying, I just don't know what I don't know about the money. I haven't been involved. I don't really think he would be hiding money, but I, but I'm not sure. And until I understand more about our finances, I won't know. So these women were finding me and you're right. Forensic accounting is expensive and I do have a big retainer. Forensic accountants, you can you know plan on spending $10,000 or more to have them get involved in your divorce. And that's just not affordable for probably 95% of people who are going through the process of divorce. Early in 2022, I got really frustrated because I couldn't help as many people as I wanted to help. And plus, I'm one person, one-on-one consulting. I can only take so many cases a year. So I came up with the idea for the Divorce Money Guide, which is an online handbook. It has videos, worksheets, written materials, checklists, things to help people look at their own finances during the process of divorce to try to figure out what has happened with the money. Yeah. And I love that you, you know, gave a little bit more of a description about the guide because it's not like it's a it's a PDF. It's an extensive guide that really can help women. And I think, you know, what you said about a lot of times it's not that the husband or the spouse is being shady. A lot of times it's that women went years and years with having no idea. I saw a friend go through this where, you know, her husband wasn't a bad guy at all, but all of a sudden she's getting divorced and she's like, I I don't know how much money he makes. I don't know what the mortgage is. I don't know what we have in savings. I have no credit card of my own. So with that being kind of the more common, I guess, situation, what would you tell a woman listening that's like, that's me. That's me that's so clueless. I'm I'm in a marriage that's, you know, not on the brink of divorce, but I want to know more. What would you tell them to do? The first step is don't be ashamed. I find very commonly that women who are in this position with a lack of knowledge about the money are ashamed that they didn't keep an eye on stuff. And they shouldn't be because this is just super common. In marriages, we divide and conquer. You know, you drop the kids off, I'll shovel the snow, things like that. So it is not unusual. It's very common for one spouse to have control over the money and handle the budget and pay the bills. 
So you are not alone. Tons of people like you, please don't be ashamed. Number two, what we have to do is just get you informed. And I realize you're probably sitting there right now saying, I have no idea where to start. Again, you are not alone. If I said to you, go get all your bank statements, you're probably going to say, eek, where do I start? And so that's exactly uh, what the Divorce Money Guide is there for, to show you exactly, here's how you get your bank statements. Here's how you can get your tax return information directly from the IRS, rather than waiting for your stupid spouse to turn over the tax returns that he's playing games with and saying, I'm not going to give them to you, right? And, and we're going to approach this very methodically. What was important to me was to think about people who are not good with numbers and haven't been involved with the money. What do they need in terms of support to get through this? And how can I make this so simple that anyone can do it? Yeah, I think it's so important. I believe so much that money knowledge is power. It's power in a divorce like you're talking about, but it's also power in yourself. And in a healthy marriage even is being aware, knowing what's happening, being part of the decisions. I think it's so important. And so I'm so grateful that you're here today to bring awareness to women that are listening that maybe have been in more of those traditional roles. And I really appreciate that you said, don't be ashamed, because I do think people feel ashamed about things when it comes to money. I think that's just a a human nature. But change won't happen if you're buried in shame. And so thank you for saying that. You're welcome. I just want to take shame away from this money situation. Even, you know, if you and your spouse are in a bad financial situation, let's set the shame aside. It can all be fixed. It's all going to get sorted out. Shame doesn't help anyone. It just makes you feel bad. I'm more on let's, uh, let's take some action and let's start working to fix it. Yeah, I, that is awesome. And I, I'm, we're going to talk more at the end a little bit about how people can find your guide and everything because I think it's so critical, especially for women that are going through a divorce um, to have the right information. So I have to ask you, did you go through a bad divorce? Is that what led you to this? I get asked that a lot. I have never been divorced. It, it is simply a function of the work that I have done. The Divorce Money Guide is for men or women. Anyone can use it. But being truthful, most of my clients in the divorce space have been women. Most of these phone calls and emails and reach outs that I get are from women. And so I really wanted to um, make sure that this tool was appropriate for them. And so it's really just all about my work experience that led me to want to help more people. My goal with the Divorce Money Guide is to help 1,000 people per year have a better financial outcome in their divorce. And when I say a better financial outcome, I mean getting their fair share. And you can't get your fair share unless you know what you have and what has been happening with the money. And so, you know, a thousand people a year is a lot more people than I, than I can help if I'm just doing one-on-one consulting. Oh my gosh. I just love this because I think so often we ask ourselves, like, what am I supposed to do next in my career or in my life? And I, I always say when you can flip the question to say, who can I serve and how can I make a difference, that the answer finds you. And it sounds like that's kind of what happened to you. And I love that your answer was, I'm going to help a thousand people because that's such 
you know, that's such a meaning to your work. It's beyond like, oh, I'm going to make all the money. It's no, I'm going to make all the difference for these women. And so that's so powerful. It is certainly a business venture. And it, the goal, the one goal of it is to make money. But what I realized very early on when I came up with the concept and was kind of thinking through how could I execute this, it became really clear to me that all I had to do was help people. And if I help people, I'll eventually make money. And so I was looking at the stats and seeing that there are on average about 700,000 divorces filed every year in the United States. So when I say to you that I want to help a thousand people a year, it's such a small drop in the bucket, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. But I mean, I'm sure to the one woman even that you make a difference in her life and having a smooth divorce it makes all the difference. So times that by a thousand, and that's that's a lot of change. That's a lot of difference made. So that's amazing. Okay. So the next question I have to ask you, because I'm dying to know, and I'm sure everyone listening is dying to know, everybody right now, like the rage is true crime, right? Like everybody's listening to true crime podcasts and all the things. So will you tell us, has there been anything especially juicy or crazy over the years that you've uncovered? You know, there's juicy stuff like the, you know, the porn sites that people get addicted to or things like um, you find on a credit card statement an unusual sounding name of a business and I go down the rabbit hole and find out, oh, it's not really a business. It's an ATM machine at a strip club. That kind of stuff is interesting. Um, <laughs> but one of my favorite stories is one that I call the Instagram investigation. And the short of it is um, my client, the wife, and her husband separated. They were going to get divorced. And her husband then got a girlfriend. So he wasn't cheating on her. He got this girlfriend afterwards, but he was spending a lot of money on the girlfriend. And unfortunately for my client, half of that money he's spending on the girlfriend is my clients. Until you guys are divorced, the money is kind of all in one big pot, or in this situation it was anyway. And so we were trying to figure out what was being spent on the girlfriend. And we were kind of coming up uh, a little bit empty because we thought that she had a credit card that belonged to my client's husband. But he said, oh no, she doesn't have a credit card. There's, there isn't a credit card in her name. Uh, the credit card company said, no, we have a credit card, but it only has his name on it. There's no one else on the account. And we couldn't prove that the girlfriend was spending using the husband's credit card. And that was frustrating to me because I wanted to know what was being spent on her. Well, this girlfriend had an Instagram account and my client, the wife, kept saying, you know, you should look at the whore's Instagram account. The whore is doing this and the whore is doing that. And I'm like, eh. So I go look at it one day and realize that every time she goes shopping, she posts a picture of herself with whatever she's purchased, Chanel bags, Hermes, this or that. She posts it on Instagram, tags the store. And I realized by looking at an, a credit card statement along with the Instagram account that I could start matching up transactions and see which transactions on the credit card were hers. Oh, look, she went and bought something from Chanel. Oh, look, she went to a fancy restaurant after she was done shopping and tagged the restaurant in herself. And I see that restaurant charge on the credit card statement. So my Instagram investigation involved 
going through her entire Instagram account, screenshotting everything, tying each picture back to the credit card statement, and ultimately coming up with $400,000 that he spent on the girlfriend. Holy cow. Instagram investigation. Like, that's crazy. Right. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's crazy. And it's just like such a testament to like modern times, right? Like that you busted this through Instagram. But wow, $400,000. Thank God she had you. That's a lot of money. Well, half of that was my client's money, right? Absolutely. Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, thanks for sharing that. I and I bet I bet there's a lot of stuff like you said, the porn and the, you know, all the all the things that you're finding on the regular. So, oh my goodness. Well, one thing that you shared with me was that your goal in midlife at some point is to have more time freedom. That the divorce guide really was part of that, but also you have this dream of traveling. And I love that you shared this with me because I think so many women in midlife are at that stage of saying, what is my next chapter going to look like? What do I want it to look like? And then kind of taking the baby steps to figure out how to get there. So will you talk a little bit about that? Yes. My work as a forensic accountant is very time intensive and it's very scheduled. So I have to be available to go to court. Um, you know, I some of it now happens over Zoom, which is great, but not all courts are allowing that. Um, my clients, the attorneys that I work with, there are deadlines that have to be met and I end up waiting for documents and waiting and waiting. And then all of a sudden the deadline is, is approaching. And now, oh my gosh, you have to work all weekend to get this all done. And as much as I love my work, uh, those time demands and those deadlines after 25 years of doing this kind of work, it's, it's a lot. And so I have this vision for myself of still working hard, but having more control over my time and my schedule. And so the divorce money guide and the other related money guides that I have been producing are part of a strategy to kind of take back some of my time. They require a lot of work and a lot of time, but it's when I decide to put in that time. And I have a plan in 2024 to start traveling more. I've always traveled a lot, but what I want to do is choose three places and spend a month living in each of those places during 2024. So kind of space them out throughout the year. And in order to be able to be completely away for a month at a time, um, I probably have to be a little bit scaled back on my consulting work and a little bit more into the divorce money guide and the other money guides. I love that because I think it's so important, and I hope everyone listening hears this, to say your dream out loud and to be just bold about it. You know, you're like, I want to spend a month in three different places. And I just think what an inspirational dream that you have, but also that you've taken action to make that become more of a reality. And I just, I love that so much. And I, I think there are so many women in midlife kind of stuck. And I think if we can dream more and then say the dream out loud, the closer we get to it because there's always an answer. And 
I can relate a lot to your time freedom because I have said like I never want a job where I have to show up anywhere every day ever again. So (laughs) I can relate to that uh, entirely. Well, and you know, when you think about this plan for 2024, what if my business doesn't evolve as fast as I'm trying to evolve it or as well as I want to, and I can't do it. I can't go on those three month long trips. Well, maybe I can go on a couple of two week long trips. Maybe it will be evolved to that point. And how terrible to be able to do that. You know, I I may not make the ultimate goal as fast as I want to get there, but I will have made progress and I will, you know, I will still have a better quality of life in 2024 than I do today, even if I don't make it all the way to that goal. That is so true. And I always say, like, put the big dream out there. And if you have to go back and tweak and edit it a little bit, it's much better than not putting the dream out there at all. And like you said, even if you end up with three two-week vacations, heck, that's a lot better than most people are doing and pretty amazing. So that's great advice. Okay. So will you tell everybody, first of all, where they can find you and where they can find the Divorce Money Guide? Super easy. They can go to divorcemoneyguide.com to find the guide itself. Uh, There's an email address there that they can catch me with, or they can go to Instagram. I'm there as Divorce Money Guide. So super easy to find me. And I will say on your Instagram, you do a lot of really helpful videos, even for people not going through a divorce. So I recommend that everybody catch you on Instagram as well, even if they're listening and they're like, yeah, I'm not going through a divorce. I think you give some really great information. But for those people that are like, I need that guide, whether they're going through a divorce or they feel like they're in that place of just lack of knowledge, I think you mentioned you wanted to offer a coupon code. Can you just talk a little bit about that? That is true. For your listeners, $100 off the Divorce Money Guide with the coupon code MIDLIFE, all capital letters, and I'm sure you'll put it in the show notes as well so that they can get it there. That coupon doesn't expire. So if you're listening to this sometime down the road, it'll still work for you. Awesome. That's great and so generous. So thank you so much. It was so good and enlightening to have you on today. I really appreciate it. It was fun talking to you. And I know it probably doesn't seem like it should be fun talking about divorce, but I think just talking about empowering people, especially women, to have more knowledge and control over their money, to me, that is uplifting. So thank you for having me. I agree 100%. Like I said to you before, I think knowledge about money is power. So thank you again. And thanks to all of you for listening. I am grateful and humbled, like always, that you listen and tune in. If you can so kindly tell the friend about a podcast and make sure you are subscribed, that helps so much. The more women that find this podcast, the fuller the conversation will be. Thanks so much, friends, and have a beautiful day. 